right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric O'Connell. I'm the high school youth pastor here at Hillside Community Church. This morning, we get to continue our series in Philippians called Joy in the Journey. Last week, uh, Pastor Ron finished up chapter 2. This week, we're diving into chapter 3. And last week, when Pastor Ron's preaching, he gave us the encouragement to look at Paul's in our life. Right, to, to see people of good examples of character, not necessarily ability, but character, observe them and learn from them. It's important for us to have those people in our lives, positive examples. Uh, for me, in my life, I've had a number of Pauls. My uncle Eric, who I'm named after, uh, was the first real man of God that I paid attention to and observed and thought, wow, that's a different lifestyle. Um, when I was 16 years old, I became a Christian. My youth pastor, Jesse, he was uh, the first real Paul I looked at. I mean, I couldn't follow him enough. He taught me everything about what it meant to be a man of God, a, a husband, a father. Uh, he discipled me intensely and poured a lot into me. But when I was in college, as the man on the left there, Bill Neinheis, my father-in-law, uh, got to spend a lot of time with him because I wanted to spend a lot of time with Jamie. And uh, as I had dinners with them and uh, it just watched the way that he loved his family, his wife and his kids, um, it showed me the type of love that was going to be required if Jamie wanted to continue to be loved well. Uh, and now that I'm a father, it's the love that I try and give to Kaya as well. It was a great Paul for me. And then here as I moved to Michigan, Pastor Ron has been a huge Paul for me. He's a uh, this is a picture of a uh, first wedding I did. Well, two of me, but this is a picture of our first wedding. And um, if you had gone to that wedding, you would have, if you had said good job to me, you might as well have said good job for showing Ron, good job, Ron, for showing Eric every step of the way. A lot of my growth as a pastor, as a father, and as a husband has been for me just spending time with him, watching him, and uh, asking him questions. So it's good for us to have those positive examples. We need them. There's a great deal we can learn from them. However, there's also a great deal that we can learn from negative examples. Uh, if you're like me, a great deal of what you've learned in life has been looking at unwise decisions people have made and say, I'm not going to try and repeat that mistake. And that's where Paul is going to urge us to watch and observe in chapter 3. He's going to point our focus to other examples, point us to bad examples and say, please learn from them as well. Here's what he says in chapter 3. It says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence... If someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, what I did, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
One thing that was abundantly clear about Paul's life is he had this overwhelming and unmatched passion for Jesus. He used to have that passion for the law and for being a Pharisee and being an upright Jew. And in the middle, in the prime of that zeal that he had for the law, Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. And he did so, as Don said, in in such a brilliant, fascinating way that it actually blinded Paul. Scripture said Paul was literally blinded. And I think when Paul regained his sight, Paul would probably be the first person to tell you for the first time, I now see clearly. I now see Jesus. It was a new lens with which he saw and he said, my life belongs to him. Everything is different. I used to zealously and gladly persecute Christians to the point of death, but now my life is all about Jesus. He loved Jesus. Jesus was the greatest thing in his life. He went from persecuting Christians to becoming the most influential missionary in all of Christian history. Why? Why such a radical conversion? If we even think of a conversion maybe that we experience in our lives, if we even think politically, it's very rare for us to spend a lifetime committed to one set of policies and one set of political things. This is how things should be governed. This is how things should be done. It's very rare to, in one instance, completely think not only are those not the right decisions, but they're the wrong decisions and they're harmful. That seems almost impossible, especially in our climate today, but Paul had that type of conversion and it was even more radical because it wasn't just a political party. It wasn't just thinking what's the right thing. It was his entire worldview. His entire identity became something unrecognizable to the old Paul. And why? Why was Paul so passionate about Jesus? What, re- what Paul came to realize in the light of Christ is that Jesus saved Paul. In Christ, Paul was a new creation. Paul had spent a lifetime trying to save himself. But when, he was, when Christ revealed himself to Paul, he said, you know what, I don't have to work one more day to save myself. Christ has already done it. Paul knew that by the grace of Christ, if Paul would just put his faith in Jesus, Jesus would save him, save him from his sin, his need to perform, save him from his own self-righteousness changed everything for him. This is the why behind Paul's passion. It was the lens through which he saw everything. Jesus Christ had saved him, therefore he was a new man. But what did his passion look like? Right? We want to try, and Paul is a good example for us, and if we seek to have passion for Christ, and as, as, as we seek to live our lives for Christ, what, does, what did it look like for Paul? Now, there's a lot of ways that Paul lived his passion out in different letters and in different passages, but in this passage, there's two things specifically that we see Paul did in regards to his passion for Christ that we should seek to emulate, that we should seek to uh, see as a good example in our own lives. First and foremost, he opposed those who taught a different gospel and he warned people about them. And second, and this is uh, thanks to George Muscle for one of his old sermons as I was looking through the archives this week, uh, he was committed to learning about the person, the power, and the passion of Christ. So let's start with the first one. Because of Paul's passion for Jesus, he regularly opposed anyone who taught a different gospel and he diligently and harshly made sure that people were warned about them and to the Philippian church that he loves so much he warns them about a group known as the Judaizers Um, he says in verse 3 watch out for those dogs those evildoers those mutilators of the flesh now in NIV we see watch out one time but in the Greek it's actually three times he says beware 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 those dogs beware those evildoers beware those those mutilators of the flesh. He wants them to pay very close attention. Uh, And if we translate the actual Greek, uh, it's more 
Uh, the more accurate translation is, I need you to consider them. I need you to take proper notice of them. Pay attention to what they do. Learn your lesson from them. Yes, learn your lesson from positive examples, but pay equal attention to negative examples and learn a lesson as you watch them. Uh, if you joined us for our Galatian series, uh, you may know who the Judaizers were. You might remember them, but just in case uh, you weren't, just a quick reminder, they were a group of Jewish Christians that visited churches that were started by Paul, and they really actually taught a similar message that, to Paul. They said, you need Jesus. Jesus is good. Jesus is necessary. You need to follow him. But they deviated from Paul's message, and at the end of the day, Jesus isn't enough. If you really want to show that you have faith, that you're the genuine article, if you really want to seal the deal, you just need to do a little bit more. And we don't know exactly what it was that they were saying to the Philippian church, because Paul doesn't say anything, but from the rest of their time in scripture, we know that there was three things they would commonly say. You need Jesus, and you need these three things. First and foremost, you need to be circumcised. That's our mark. That's our seal. It lets us know, and it lets the whole world know that you are one of us. Second, you need to eat Jewish dietary restriction. There's just some foods that Jesus does not want you to eat, but it's not just that he doesn't want you to. He needs you to take a stand. You need to completely rid yourself of that. You need to eat kosher, and anyone who doesn't, you need to not spend time with them. And then lastly, you need to observe the Sabbath Sabbath regulations. Uh, It's been like this since the beginning. Even God observed the Sabbath. Moses in the Ten Commandments said this is an important thing to do. If you want to show you have real faith, you need to continue to observe the Sabbath. This message was, you need Jesus, but he's not all you need. You need Jesus plus fill in the blank. To Paul, Jesus plus was a completely false gospel. It wasn't good news. It was destructive. And while those three rules might have appealed to Paul's audience, they may not appeal to us, but the heartbeat of that message unfortunately can easily and deeply resonate with us that jesus plus gospel can appeal to us because what it gives us is self-confidence to say i indeed do follow jesus i am the genuine article i am a good person god is pleased with me because i do x y or z Paul regularly warns us of dangers, and there are certain dangers that we see, I want nothing to do with that, and we run as far away as we possibly can. But the reason Paul despised this message so much and opposed it so harshly is because unlike other dangers, this one, if we fall prey to it, can actually give us false assurance and hope that all is well, that we don't need Jesus as much as we actually do. Left unchecked, what this gospel will do is produce in us harmful self-righteousness. It allows us to fall into the very easy temptation of not focusing on Christ, but on ourselves and others. As we judge ourselves against others' actions to say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. and In fact, I'm good. And when we get to heaven and the highlight reel of our sin starts playing, mine's going to end a little bit earlier. And because of that, God is going to be happier with me. Paul despised this message with every bone in his body. So often, what we would see is he would come to churches, found them, and he'd preach the gospel message, and they would say, I believe, I believe that Jesus alone saves, and they would start living out active, vibrant, and living faith. And Paul even says that to them. He reminds them. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, but what he's really saying is, you guys, you're already a member of the family of God. You already serve God by his spirit. You're already boasting in Christ Jesus. You put no confidence in the flesh. You're doing it. You're already living out faith as Christ calls you to. But then Paul's opponents would come in and say, you're on your way, yes, but you're not there yet. 
And Paul too often saw faithful brothers and sisters willingly retreat back into spiritual slavery. They would often, they would again start to find confidence in their works and what they did instead of the works of Christ, instead of the grace and love of Christ. And I think what broke Paul's heart the most is that they believed that they were getting closer and closer and closer to Christ. They thought their good works were bringing them closer when in reality it was bringing them farther and farther and farther away. And Paul knew this because that was the life that he lived. So in warning the Philippians about the danger of this false gospel, he actually goes and he brags about his old life, not sarcastically, not self-deprecating in any way. He says, look, if works can save you, if what they're telling you is true, if you can add a single ounce of righteousness before Christ by the things that you do, let me tell you, I've ran and I've already finished that race. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, things that were granted to him, but things that he did in regard to the law, I became a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, he uses a really big word here that is usually used for God. I was faultless. Without getting into the details of each one of these reasons for confidence, basically what Paul tells the Philippians is, guys, according to those rules, man, I nailed it. I am the picture of perfection. This is, I followed this perfectly. And not only that, but he wants, what, the, what he was saying is, what the people who are trying to convince you of is real faith, I checked all their boxes. I met all of the requirements. I had the perfect religious upbringing and I used every blessing and opportunity that I had to thrive. I reached the top of the mountain. I was the man. And let me tell you what all that work, what I ended up realizing and came to find out. He said, but whatever work gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Imagine for a moment if you took everything you owned in this world, put it in a financial ledger, and all you saw was profit, 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 gain, 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 appreciating asset after the next. Right? No debts, nothing to account for, no monthly bills, no mortgage, no nothing. It's just profit after profit, gain after gain, only appreciating assets. But then you came to find through an accounting error that you made that not only was it not supposed to be in the profit, but it was supposed to be in the loss column. Not that it was no longer of value, not that your appreciating assets all of a sudden went to zero, but that everything that you thought was a profit was actually a debt. That is what Paul's acts of righteousness, he says, before God were. All that he had gained wasn't just useless. Everything he had done wasn't just useless. It was a loss. And it wasn't just any type of loss. It was a really, really gross loss. And what I mean by that is Paul, in trying to describe the type of loss, he uses, this, he uses a word that he uses one time. It's the only time in Scripture uh, to describe it. And it's, it's basically what he's saying is against the backdrop of Christ, in light of what God has done for me, in light of who he is and how he saves me, my good deeds, he says, are scubala, right? It's a fun word. Uh, the NIV translated it as garbage, uh, but there, this word has a lot of meanings. Uh, dung, feces, refuse, waste, food gone rotten or bad. And whatever definition he meant, one thing is true is that in the Bible and in other literature, when this word was used, it was meant to invoke an emotional revulsion. It was supposed to be the worst type of 
It was supposed to be offensive. So really, think of all these words. One of the more offensive ways you can think of this word, I'll let you use your imagination so I don't get in trouble at church. But what Paul is saying is, my, my good works, it's, it's dung. It's, it's, it is a steaming pile of you-know-what. It is rotten, molded garbage that has no use than to be incinerated and, and thrown away completely. That's what my good deeds are, Paul says, in the equation of what saves me. It's nothing better than a bag of rotten, molded food. Before Christ, Paul saw his, trof- or he saw his good deeds as trophies, but in the light of Christ, he saw that they weren't trophies at all. They, they were trash. What he thought was going to be a shrine to his self-righteousness, what he thought was he was going to prepare to show God when he got to heaven to say, look how good I am, he realized it's nothing but trash. But not just any type of trash, it's destructive trash, trash with cement shoes, trash that you carry to your own peril, trash that ultimately is not just an inconvenience, it brings you farther and farther away from Christ. Paul came to this realization, and I think it makes us have to stop and ask, what trophies are on your mantle that are actually trash? What good deeds exist in our life that reap confidence in our hearts? What boxes do we create in order to self-righteously check them off at the end of the day so that we can feel good about ourselves and tell ourselves, well done, good and faithful servant? Uh, as I spoke to Ron about this, it was interesting. Had a moment in time for me where I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not that way. You know, the, I think I'm not a part of the CRC culture. I'm a California outsider. I wear flip-flops all the time, the whole, whole deal. And uh, the idea of not mowing your lawn on Sunday is a foreign concept to me. I, sorry, I do it. Uh, I go to the mall on Sunday. I do, I do all types of things on Sundays that I didn't realize I wasn't supposed to do. And so it was really funny when, Paul, when Ron was giving the examples. I was like, well, I don't do that. And truly, in that moment, I thought, see, I'm good. And he said, so what are those things that you tell yourself that I'm good? What labels do you attach to yourself to say, I'm good? How am I a good Christian? And I actually uh, then post that question uh, on Facebook and then also um, to some people over the phone. I said, what are the things that we do that convince ourselves that I am a good Christian to myself and to other people? What, what boxes do I ultimately create to check off to say that uh, Christ is pleased with me? And I got a lot of answers, so thank you for the people that uh, gave some feedback. Here are some of the things. Yeah, if I'm a good Christian, I go to church. And if I'm a good Christian, I join a Bible study and I do a small group. If I'm a good Christian, I serve the church. I, I, I make sure that I'm a volunteer in some ministry. And if I really want to take it seriously, I'll go for a mission trip. Maybe I'll take work off for a week so that I can go uh, be a leader on a mission trip. Uh, it, it looks like being a good Christian is social media posts, making sure that you put your own personal piety, your own spiritual uh, disciplines out. Look how much I read scripture. Look how much I pray. But not at just that, but look how much I care for people that no one else seems to care for. Good Christians tithe, right? They give to charity and better Christians give really big gifts. Uh, good Christians consume only Christian media and they boycott secular media very harshly, making sure that they oppose it and let people know good Christians live a pure lifestyle. No drinking, no drugs, no tattoos, no uh, premarital impurities. Good Christians, if they really love their kids, they want to make sure that they're set up so they send them to the right school. They make sure they go to Kids Rock, make sure they go to middle school, make sure they go to high school. Good Christians uh, schedule sometimes public, uh, they make sure they have a Bible by their bedside so they can make sure to remind to read it. They put it in their house so people know this is when I read scripture. Uh, They pray before every single meal. Now, let me be abundantly clear. None of these things are objectively bad. 
right? Like Don said uh, in her thing, it's, it, it, they're not bad things. The things that we do to serve Christ are not bad things at all. These things actually very well might be the fruit, the natural result of a living, vibrant, and genuine faith in Christ. However, we need to make sure that as we do these things that we're checking our motivation. What is our motivation? Are we doing these things like Paul before he met Jesus so that we can convince ourselves and those watching that indeed I am a good Christian, I am a good person? Do we do these things? Are we motivated to do this so that we can have confidence that God's smile will widen a little bit as he looks at us? Do we, upon checking off these boxes, are we able to sleep a little bit better at night saying, I just did a little bit better today than the day before and I'm sure God's happy with me? If so, if, that, if we do any of those things because we think it will make God love us more, if we do any of those things because we think it will it'll add more righteousness uh, to, to our debt before God, I think Paul would say, please, I beg you, throw it in the trash where it belongs. It's not only useless, it's harmful for you. It, please don't place a single ounce of confidence or hope in any good work that you do thinking that it will make God love you more, thinking that you will add an ounce of righteousness. To, all you're doing is adding self-righteousness. All you're doing is adding harm. It's not good. Please count everything that you think you have ever done in self-righteousness to make God love you more. Count it all as loss. Out of Paul's passion for Jesus, he says, please, just as I did, count all his loss. Count all your self-righteousness as garbage so that, for what reason? So that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's not what we want, but we want a righteousness that's which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. As we seek to follow Christ and live for him with passion, like Paul, we're called to identify the things that threaten to take us away from Christ, that offer us trash, and we're called to oppose it and do our best to warn others to stay far away. And maybe the first person we need to warn sometimes is ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that, that life in Christ, righteousness that saves, it's not found in presenting trash to God. It's not found in our works. And if it's not found there, where is it found? Paul shows us, the second part, he provides the example for us, that it's found in the actual pursuit of knowing Christ first and foremost. Paul, having lived a life that produced no righteousness that was beneficial for his relationship with Christ on his own, knew that the only suitable reorientation, the only suitable 180-degree turn and head the other way, the only suitable redirection was to focus on Christ and Christ alone, to know Christ to get to know Christ, not his accomplishments before God, not, uh, not his accomplishments in comparison to others. Paul knew that following Christ doesn't look like do good works so that God will love me. Paul tells us, he shows us that the Christian life, passion for Jesus, uh, showing that passion means that we first focused on Christ. We get to know Christ, specifically the person, the power, and the passion of Christ. What would it look like for you before you do another checking of a box, before you engage in another single act of Christian good deed service? What would it look like for you to say, first, am I doing this to seek to grow closer to Christ? Am I doing this because I am trying to know Christ more? 
Like Paul, do I know the person, the power, the passion of Christ? Because it's in knowing these things and it's in seeking after these things that, uh, it, it, that we have the proper order and the proper context for any good works that exists in our lives. The more we know Christ, the more we come to know Christ, the more we won't even be able to help but to do good things in response to Christ. How does the person, power, and passion of Christ inform my actions And what do I mean by those three things? And then we'll close with this. Because this is the second part. Paul says, I'm going to commit myself to knowing these three things. So first and foremost, do I know the person of Christ? Okay, Do I know the person? Because Paul says, I want to know Christ. Do I know the person of Christ? We want to know about Christ. What has Christ done? Who is he? What example did Christ set before us? What was his ministry like? How did how did he treat people? How did he treat people that loved him and he loved? And how did he treat people that hated him? What did he do to people? And how did he treat people that were in need? What was it about Jesus that changed Paul's life so radically? What was it about Jesus that changes the world so radically? When we try and answer those questions, then we start to get a roadmap of what faith in action looks like as we seek to imitate Jesus. But it's not just about knowing about him, not just the head knowledge. It's also, uh, we want to get to know Christ, to uh, a heart knowledge, being in a personal relationship. Do I have a deep and intimate relationship with Jesus? Do I know who he is? Do you know I know who I am in relation to Jesus? The reality is, is that Jesus invites us to cast our yoke upon him, to learn from him, to rest in him. That is a very intimate invitation, something that says, come get to know me and learn from me. How do we accept that invitation? Three things. We spend time with him, we talk to him, and we trust him. Okay, first and foremost, time. How do we get to know Jesus? We spend time. And you know how that happens? We can read scripture. It's not a box to check off. John says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is not an obligatory spiritual textbook. It is not a dead document. It is not something that we self-righteously publish in our house or put on display so people know we read it. It is the literal breathing, living revelation of Jesus Christ to us. 2 Timothy says in chapter 3, verse 16, 17, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and what? For training us in righteousness. Right? That's not self-righteousness, but actually training us in righteousness so that the servant of God is equipped for every good work. We don't do this to show that we are a good Christian. We read our, our, our Bibles. We spend time with Jesus in scripture so that we can actually be trained in righteousness, and be equipped to do good works. When we start with trying to know Christ more, the natural result is that we actually end up achieving a much better version, the right version, of what we were trying to attempt in in getting self-righteousness in the first place. It's rooted in Christ and not ourselves. Second, we spend time talking to God in prayer. Now, When we come to Christ in prayer, we come before our living Savior and we're actually having a conversation. When we actually view it as that, think about people that you, your best friends that you have conversations with. It's something that you like to return to. It's something that you like to actually engage in more than once a day. If you could talk to people you love the most, I talk to my wife all the time. I Even though she can't speak back to me, I try and talk to my daughter as much as I possibly can. When we see it as a genuine conversation to get to know somebody, again, it's not a box to check off before meals. 
When we realize that we can come to him, that we can praise him for all the blessings in our life, we get to actually confess our sins, say, God, I am sorry that, that, I, that I've sought life and hope in other things that aren't you. People in our lives won't forgive us, but God says every time he's faithful to forgive us, to strengthen us, and to give us new mercies. We make our requests known to him, and the more we talk with him, we actually find that our desires get shifted to be more like Christ and not our own, and God says, I'm happy. I'm abundantly happy to answer those prayer requests. We get the opportunity to truly serve others by interceding on behalf of them, and then we wait to hear. When we view it as a living, breathing conversation with the Savior that loves us, again, it's not just a a box to check off. It's a way we get to know Christ more. And then lastly, we, we trust. Okay, uh, Again, think of the person that you know most in your life, the person that you trust most in your life. There's a good chance that person you know the most about and they know the most about you. Every single one of us has had the opportunity, or maybe not every single one, but most of us have either swam or ridden a bike in our life. We've learned that. And that wasn't something we did on our own. That was something that someone came alongside and said, will you trust me? I'll show you how to do this. And when you get scared, I'll pick you up out of the deep waters. And when you fall down on the ground, I'll pick you in the bike up and we'll do it again. Again, Christ gives us the invitation. Again, come to me. Let me show you an abundant life. Let me take care. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Getting to know Christ means we trust him in good times and especially in bad times. This is how we come to know the person of Christ. Knowing more about the person of Christ ultimately transforms us more into his likeness. Second, Paul said, I want to know the power of Christ. It's an interesting, he says, yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. This is an interesting uh, thing for us to consider because I don't think we think about this that much. But what Paul is saying is, what is it about Christ's power that, that, that changes me as a person. The reality is that that resurrection power, when we come to know Jesus more, when we seek to know what power he has, scripture tells us of a God, of a Savior who quite literally defeated death that promises us that one day he will come and renew everything, wipe away every tear, no more pain, no more death, and we'll get to spend eternity with him. However, right here, right now, his resurrection power is available to us. And it offers us a great gift. And what, and what is that great gift? The gift is that that same power that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, Paul believed and we believe that we, that same power that raised God from the dead can actually live in our hearts. It lives in our hearts and it changes our heart of stone to a heart of flesh and we become a new creation. The old dies, the new is here. And that has practical consequences for our lives that quite often look like good works because when we become a new creation through the power of Christ, one of the first things that we're able to do is no longer be enslaved by sin but have freedom in Christ. And what that freedom in Christ looks like is now we can actually obey him. Because before, we were in rebellion. Before, we were at enmity. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually now have the strength to say, not my will be done, but his will be done. And we can actually follow and obey Christ's commandments in love. When we have that, that, that resurrection power that takes residence in our hearts, we can endure storms that we thought were going to destroy us. Not because we have the power, but because the Holy Spirit has given us that power. And we can have hope in even the most dire of situations. When we have that resurrection power that lives and takes residence in our hearts, we actually have the confidence and the hope to be able to say death will not have the final say. That is a radical statement, but we can have that through this resurrection power that Jesus offers us. And then lastly, we can invite others to share in the hope that we have. 
Not witnessing, not telling people about Jesus because that's what God wants. It's, I've experienced this. I am a new creation. And because of that, why would I not want to tell as many people as possible? We can invite others to gladly share through our words, our witness, and even good deeds. That's how the power of Christ informs our actions. Our good deeds in response to his power is thus, again, not a box to check off, but it's the proper response to our powerful God. And then lastly, Paul says, I want to know the passion of Christ. Do I know the passion? And what I mean by passion is the actual passion narrative, his, his arrest, his trial, his suffering, which ultimately led to his death. When we pay close attention to how the resurrection of Christ unfolded, thus again granting us access to that resurrection power, we can't help but notice a fundamental important detail, and that is God used the suffering of Christ for not only Christ's benefit, but for our own for the benefit of the whole world, it's by Christ's wounds, by his suffering, that we are healed, that we are forgiven. When we realize that the all-powerful creator who could have chosen any crown to glorify himself chose a crown of thorns. When we realize that Jesus, even though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he took the form of a servant and he became obedient to death, it teaches us something very, very important. That suffering, while not pleasant, is actually an instrument in God's plan and in our growth. Right? Christ endured suffering for the sake of others. He set before us this example that sometimes God will be at work most powerfully when we suffer, when we die to ourselves, when we pick up and bear our, cri- our cross. Paul said this in Second Corinthians. He said, I ask God to take my suffering away, but he says, no, my grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in weakness. The goal is not to seek suffering out. Please don't hear me say that. Paul says, I want to participate in Christ's suffering for what reason? Ultimately, so that I may become like him in his death. The goal in suffering is to welcome it so that we can become more like Christ. There's something that happens when when, when we share in the same sufferings as Christ. Things like spiritual warfare, things like persecution and rejection, things like picking up our cross and denying ourselves. When we welcome suffering through the power of the Holy Spirit and trust in Jesus, There's this spiritual union that happens where we experience uh, growth and we become more like Christ. If we die with him, then we're also raised with him. Suffering might very well be the very thing that transforms us and therefore our actions, good deeds, and our faith in Christ, and we will become more and more like Christ. So knowing the passion of Christ, sharing in his sufferings allows to be transformed more and more into his likeness and more in his image, which will then result in good, more good deeds. In closing, here's what I want to suggest. When we know these things, when we seek to know Christ better, his person, his power, and his passion, Paul says the natural outcome is that our pursuit of self-righteousness will be abandoned. And as we seek to know Christ, our desire and our singular passion will be to become more like him. And when we become more like him, inevitably what will happen is we will do more good. So my encouragement is keep up the good work. Don't cease being good. Don't cease doing good. There's a great danger in thinking that our good works will save us, but there's an equal danger in being complacent and not doing anything, not doing any good works that God has called us to. Keep up the good work, but when you do, don't store up self-righteous trophies that end up becoming trash. But instead, seek first to know the power 
the person and the passion of Jesus Christ. When we do this, things that once were boxes to check off, things that we thought were obligatory offerings to make God more pleased with stuff, pleased with us, what they become is we find that those good deeds are actually a natural fruit of a relationship. They are the appropriate responses to a savior. They become continued avenues and opportunities with which we get to grow more and more in Christ and like Christ. So let us seek Christ first, keep up the good work. Ultimately, that's the trophy that we're after. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your example. We thank you that we can look to you, we can look to other Pauls, and realize that there's not a thing that we can do to make you love us more. There's not a thing we can do uh, for for us to save ourselves. And sometimes that can be scary because that's what we want to provide. We want to show that we're worthy. But God, thank you that in your death, in your burial, in your resurrection, that you have already told us we are worthy. May we believe that message. May we believe that truth. And out of a response for the radical service and love you have given us, would we seek to do good? Not to make you, not to make you love us more, not to add righteousness to our scorecard, God, but because that is what you've first given to us. You've given us love. You've given us goodness. Would we respond by just wanting to have that be an outpour from us so that others can experience your goodness, your love, your forgiveness, and your grace. In Holy Spirit, equip us and empower us to do good work. In your name we pray. Amen.